So we start a new series uh, today, and you have this card. If you came in and the greeters were doing their job, they gave you a bulletin, and in there was this card. Seven greatest words of history, and we're going to spend ten weeks on them. Seven words, ten weeks. So I know you're smart enough to know there's several weeks. We're going to spend two weeks on one of the words. They're all spoken by the same person. who is Jesus, and they're all spoken at the same time in three hours in which He hung on the cross. And our conclusion is that every single one of us have at least seven primary needs and every one of those needs, every one of them is addressed by Jesus on the cross. And so this morning we begin in Luke chapter 23 beginning in verse 26 where Jesus speaks a word of forgiveness of all of the needs that we have, is there any need greater than to know that we are forgiven? Not only by others, but most importantly by God. So let's read together. And the crowd was urgent, demanding with loud cries that he, Pilate, should, or Jesus be crucified. And their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on His right, one on His left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide His garments. The man writes, I'm not a golf fan. In fact, until last weekend, I had never watched golf on TV. But when I heard that Tiger Woods was in the final group at the Masters, I had to tune in. You see, I've been quietly rooting for Tiger Woods for years. From the moment I heard of his troubled life, from the moment he made headlines for all the wrong things, ten years ago, I went from indifference to feeling compassion for him. So whenever I heard his name on television or radio, I always would say a quick prayer. Not that he'd win another tournament, 
but for His redemption. Redemption with a capital R. You see, I have an odd connection with Tiger Woods. Our lives, our goals, our sins are not the same. But I know what it's like to have obtained something and then lost it. I know what it's like to have let those down around you who love you. I know what it's like to have hurt people to the core. I know what it's like to struggle with painful memories of self-inflicted wounds that refuse to be buried. I know what it's like to have friends, at least you think they're friends, but you discover that they're not friends at all. I've known what it's like to be delivered over to a vicious media that is all too willing, gleefully, to long for your destruction and then to cover it as long as you get enough clicks. But last Sunday showed the world what forgiveness and grace looks like. Less than a year ago, he couldn't even walk with four back surgeries. His win at the Masters was such an accomplishment that Sports Illustrated did something they've never done in their 65-year history. They put a picture of a person celebrating his victory on the cover with no headline. They didn't name him. They didn't identify the sport. They didn't identify the event. They didn't identify the location. All they had was this picture. And what the editors were saying is, if you don't know who this is and what he's done, then you don't know much. I don't know Tiger Woods. I don't dare judge him. He's gotten too much of that. Rather, I pray that in light of his recent triumph, he gives credit to God whose grace is so remarkable that he gives it, he bestows it in large measure to even those who don't even know him. I pray for Tiger Woods that his redemption doesn't just happen on the golf course. It happens in his heart and his life. For the greatest wonder of God's forgiveness and redemption is that it's available to everyone. It's no respecter of persons. While many may seek to withhold it, the Lord never does. Two days after the Masters, I got a call from a woman. I wasn't in town. And so I got a message that had her name and her number. I knew her number. And as soon as I saw that message that she had called, I knew exactly what she wanted to talk about. She wanted to talk about Tiger. And the reason she wanted to talk about Tiger is because her husband hated Tiger. He used to call him Dougie's boy. And as soon as I saw him sink that final putt, hours after he had done it, my mind immediately went to Don Lee's. 
You know, for years he'd be in a wheelchair and I'd watch golf with him. And every time I wanted to tweak him a bit, I'd say, look at Tiger, Don, look at Tiger. And so when I called Donna, I wasn't surprised to hear what she said. I said, Donna, this is Doug. She said, Doug, did you see Tiger win? Oh, Don would have loved it. And he would have loved to talk about every shot with you. And you know, as soon as she said it, I know she was right. Because in the last four or five years of Don's life, I saw him soften. Not just toward Tiger, but toward Jesus. I thought, she's right. Don came to know what the writer's talking about. Did you know that grace always flows downhill? Don came to know it. And you know, that's why the cross is such a scandal to most people. Most people, when they think of the cross, they just give it a glancing look because it's such a scandal. Because when you really look at the cross and you hear what He says from the cross, you know you put Him there. And it's not comfortable. Of anyone in human history, there is one person who knew more about the scandal of the cross than anyone, and that's the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says when he comes to write to the Corinthians, the first letter that we have. He says to them, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know among you just one thing, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now think of all of the things Paul could have taught them. Think of all of the wisdom he could have imparted. He studied with the greatest teacher of his day. He tells us in a veiled reference that he spent months, maybe even as long as three years, with the resurrected Jesus in the desert of Arabia. I mean, think of what he could have told them. And yet, when he comes to them, he said, I determined to know only one thing among you, and that's the crucifixion of Jesus. You see, Paul understood that the cross is the measure of every life. What happens on the cross is the determining factor between life and death, between death and destruction or eternal life. And what drives Paul to the conclusion that he will determine to know nothing among them except Jesus and Him crucified is not just what Jesus does on the cross, but what He says in all of human history. There are, no, there are no other words that are more significant and more meaningful to your life and mine than what Jesus says on the cross. They address every single need we have. And that's why Henry and I have decided over the next ten weeks that we're going to look at these, we're going to unpack the statements of Jesus. Some call them the seven last words of Jesus. 
or the seven last sayings of Jesus. But we've decided to call them the seven greatest words of history because those words are more poignant and more powerful and more precise for meeting the need of your life than any words ever spoken. One anonymous poet put it this way, Upon a life that I've never lived, upon a death I will never die, upon another's life and another's death, I stake my entire existence. And it begins with what he says in the first word from the cross, which is the word of forgiveness. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the moment in which he says it. Look at verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. Now, if you were reading the King James, you you will note that the translators of King James Version nearly 500 years ago put a word into the text that's not in the Greek text. The Greek text says, and... Jesus said, but they insert the word then. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And the reason the translators put the then in there is because they know what important moment this is. I mean, think of this moment. Jesus doesn't say a word before the Sanhedrin. When he's before Pilate, he doesn't say, Father, forgive him. He is being scourged and beaten when they put the crown of thorns on his head. When he's stumbling under the weight of the cross, he does not say, Father, forgive them. When they're cursing him, when they're spitting at him, When they're driving nails into His hands and feet, Jesus doesn't say then, Father, forgive them. It's not until He comes to the place of the skull, the garbage dump outside the city of Jerusalem, hanging on a cross between two criminals. It's not until then that He says, Father, forgive them. when all of the evil has reached its giant crescendo, at a time when it would be natural to say, Father, get them! He says, Father, forgive them. It's not until men have done their worst that God does His best. Years ago, I had a friend in Miami by the name of Rusty, and I always thought that was a great name for somebody living in Miami with all that salt. Rusty. Rusty had a couple of kids, and they had a couple of kids, and he actually had three granddaughters all under the age of four, and he'd babysit a lot. So one day, he has all uh, three grandchildren under the age of four, and they're all playing on the floor, and he looks down, And he thinks to himself, isn't this wonderful just to think of God's grace in my life? To give me three beautiful girls that are just playing so wonderfully together. And as soon as he thinks it, the oldest one sees the toy that the youngest one has and grabs it out of her hands. And you know what happened. 
a shriek, a cry. And Rusty <laughs> looks at his oldest granddaughter and says, Sweetheart, we don't do those kinds of things. Give that toy back. She puts her head down. Goes over to her sister and gives the toy back. And says, I'm sorry, granddaddy. Everything gets back to normal for five minutes. She sees another toy the other sister has, grabs it. He looks at her and says, Honey, I said we don't do those things here. She puts her head down and gives the toy back and says, Granddaddy, I'm sorry. Five minutes later, she does it again. He gets up out of his chair, goes over, takes her by the arm, and I said, he said, I said we don't do those things anymore. And she says, Granddaddy, I'm sorry. He says, sorry's not good enough. And instantly in his soul, he hears the Lord say, it was good enough for me. How many times has He forgiven you for the same offense? How many times have you done exactly the same thing? And the Lord said, I forgive you. Look at the moment. In the face of no repentance... In the face of I'm, none of us are sorry. In the face of no single awareness of sin. At a point in which you and I would have said, Father, get him. He says, at the moment of the deepest, darkest human depravity, He says, Father, forgive them. Second, notice the method of His forgiveness. Look at verse 34. He said, Father, forgive them. Did you know that there's no other place in the Bible where Jesus prays for His Father to forgive anybody? Jesus never said this. Jesus had told His disciples, all authority in heaven and earth is given to Me. Jesus meets the woman caught in the very act of adultery who's thrown by the Pharisees at her feet. And what does He say? He says to her daughter, your sins are forgiven. One day He's crowded into a room in a house. There's no more room and four guys have a friend and they want Him to get to the feet of Jesus. So you remember they take off the ceiling tile and they lower Him down. And what does Jesus do when He sees Him? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus announces to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come into your house. Meaning what? Today you are forgiven. No other time in three years of Jesus' earthly ministry does Jesus say, Father, forgive them. He doesn't pray. He simply extends it. But here, He's laid down all of His authority. 
the hands that would touch the infirmed and heal them or nailed to the cross. The feet that would carry them around to deliver the message of good news to the captives. You're free are now affixed to the cross. Jesus can't touch. Jesus can't walk. Jesus can't do anything but speak. The One who delivered the captives is now a captive. And what does He say? Father, forgive them. I think of Samson. Remember what they did to him? They did many of the same things they did to Jesus. All his strength is gone. He's experienced the depth of human wickedness. And at the last moment of his life, he prays, Lord, strengthen me that I might destroy my enemies. Jesus doesn't pray that. He says, Father, don't destroy them. Forgive them. Third, notice not only the moment and the method. Notice the message of forgiveness. Look at verse 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Mark Twain said, there's something to be said for ignorance. It gives rise to 90% of all conversation. And think of it, that was before cell phones and Facebook. But Jesus isn't so positive about ignorance. You see, Jesus knows that they have had for three years the witness that more than 30 prophecies have been fulfilled in their midst. For more than three years, they've seen His miracles. For more than three years, they've witnessed His compassion. For more than three years, they've heard Him speak the Word of God. In fact, they've even said, no one speaks like Him. And yet, what do they do? They say, crucify Him. Instead of worshiping Him, instead of giving Him His due, they actually steal from Him. What does Luke tell us? They cast lots for His garments. We do the same thing. And yet we're on the other side of the cross. We're on the other side of the resurrection, yet we do the same thing. You say, how is that? He is Lord. And yet we live like we are Lord. How many times have you said, I have rights. I can do what I want to do. You tell me to do A, I'm doing B. I'm in charge. It's all about me. And we take what is His and we attribute it to ourselves. 
We think we're Lord. And in the face of it, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then fourth, notice the magnitude of the forgiveness. Remember the story that Stephen Covey wrote about maybe 15 years ago? He said one morning, it was a Saturday morning, he went on a train, a subway train in New York City, and he's in there, and subway trains Saturday morning aren't so full. He said it's quiet, and all of a sudden they stop at a train stop, and in walks a man with three young children, and as soon as the kids get on the railroad car, they go crazy. I mean, they're jumping all around, they're hitting people, they're, they're acting crazily. And the people all in the train are getting upset, and Covey can see it, he's getting upset. And finally, he decides after thinking about it for a few minutes, I'm going to talk to this guy. He said, sir, do you know what your kids are doing? And yet you're sitting idly by, it's like you're in a trance. Would you tell your kids to behave? Will you get control of them? He said, suddenly the guy shook his head and said, oh, I'm sorry. You see, we've just come from the hospital where their mother died. And Covey said, at that moment I recognized I am blind and stupid. I've jumped to a conclusion that wasn't right. And we all do that. You're sitting in a parking lot waiting to get into that space and a guy rear-ends you. And you think, what's going on here? You get out of your car and you can't control your... Are you blind or stupid? What are you doing? And then you look and you see it's a 98-year-old lady with two canes. And you say to yourself, ma'am, I'm sorry. Are you okay? Don't worry about me. In fact, I was just sitting there thinking about what was I going to do with that extra thousand dollars I've got? That's how we forgive. We forgive based on shame. We forgive based on a calculation. Maybe one day I'll need forgiveness. We forgive based on self-interest. But Jesus never does. Jesus bases His forgiveness on His own blood. Somebody has said, what good are shoes if you can't walk? What good are glasses if you're blind? What good is leniency when your heart is evil and corrupt? What good is cheap, selfish, sentimental forgiveness when our need is so great? What we need is a costly, unconditional, repetitive, all-pervasive forgiveness. And thank the Lord that's the kind of forgiveness Jesus gives. At a time when He is in His greatest need, He doesn't pray for Himself, He prays for us. He prays that His Father will see His broken body and His shedding blood and extend to us the benefit of forgiveness. We caused it. 
And he says to his father, Father, forgive them for all their sin. Past, present, future. You know how the man concludes that article? He says this weekend, Christians around the world will celebrate Easter. The day when Jesus Christ is said to have died for the sins of the world and then rose again. Many Christians think that they need Christ's redeeming work on the cross. But they need it less than the next guy. That's because we're all hardwired to judge others more lightly than we judge ourselves. Or judge ourselves less lightly than than we judge others. You think you're better than Tiger Woods? I've got news for you, you aren't. And if you think he's unworthy of redemption, then you failed to understand the nature of your own offense against God. The wonderful thing about grace and forgiveness is that God makes it available to everyone. And while many of us seek to withhold it, God never does. And Jesus proves it. That's why his first words from the cross is a prayer. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think God answered that prayer? Look at your life. And you'll see the answer. Think about that. Amen.